Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. First of all, before we get going too far into this, I just want to say, how about Lance Ward last week? That was a really good conversation. I'm thankful that he came on here. And, you know, you guys that listen to the podcast are always really kind. I think every episode we've ever done, somebody has reached out, either text or email or or uh, just in person and said, you know, they really enjoyed it or they got something from it. I mean, we got a text this morning about the podcast being impactful. Yes. Um, but what really, it didn't surprise me, but what really encouraged me about last week was how many people I think were encouraged and affected by Lance as he talked about what it means to really care for people and right. what it means to walk through tough situations with people. And I'm really glad that he came on and talked about that. I am too. Most of the people that know Lance know him as a guy with a great sense of humor because that's what you see. But then Mm -hmm. you heard his passion for his ministry and what he does. And that's the Lance I know better. And it's powerful. I've learned a lot from Lance Ward. Yes. I've loved the time we got to spend with him and just wanted to kind of recap that as we kicked off this week. If you haven't listened to that episode, listen to this episode first, because this one's <laughs> going to be great too. But but uh, that is definitely one you don't want to miss. That was a really cool conversation. Absolutely. So today, I, I want to tackle what seems like maybe a gargantuan topic, but one that I think will be really helpful, and that is the book of Romans. So sure. here in the next few minutes, let's just go ahead and exhaust everything there is to say about the book of Romans. <laughs> and the reason I want to do that is, number one, there's probably not a more foundational book in the New Testament to understand the gospel, to understand um, the theology of salvation and sanctification and the atonement than the book of Romans. And conveniently enough, you just taught a 11-week 11 11 series, series yes. on Romans. And so I wanted to kick it off by asking you, if you could give us a short summary, help us just wrap our minds around what the point of the book of Romans is. What are the major movements? What are the major themes? Give us your, here's Romans in a nutshell. Okay. From the series. So we'll just give you the 11 weeks in a few sentences. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. The 11 weeks were way too long. Give us the... Uh, <laughs> You know, it has a simple storyline, it seems to me, and obviously everybody listening would add things to what I'm about to say, and and rightly so. But first of all, one of the things I love about Romans is oftentimes, I'll get on my soapbox briefly, if we aren't careful, if we present a gospel that's a psychotherapeutic gospel or felt need gospel, and and that's all that it is. Or an ultra, ultra theological gospel. Or even ultra theological gospel. That's true. Oftentimes you end up with a solution that's running around looking for a problem. Mm -hmm. One of the beauties of the book of Romans is right up front, here's how it begins and here's how I would summarize it. We have a problem and it's not what we think. It's called the wrath of God in response to our sin. We have a terminal disease and we cannot cure it. But God, because he loved us, I'm now moving to chapter five pretty quickly. God, because he loved us, made a way for us to live. The cure is regeneration. In other words, our old self will indeed die, but we will live in newness of life, a life that need never end. And then the rest of the book are some of the implications of and what it looks like to live out the cured new life. So So, really short summary there. Yeah, but that's a great place to start because I think one of the mistakes with the book of Romans is to look at Romans like a miniature systematic theology. Right. And and people describe it like that, and I don't think that's a negative thing necessarily. It is one of the most overtly theological books in the New Testament. But here's something I always I always try to keep in mind when I'm reading the Bible is the people that heard this for the first time were not theologians. That's a great point. I mean, think about this. You're in Rome, you've never met Paul, you've heard about him because there are several people in the church that know him and have done ministry with him. And you receive this letter and it's what we know as the book of Romans and it's read out loud probably mm-hmm. in its completion several times and then in chunks <laughs> after that in your church gatherings that you have. Uh-huh. And Paul expected you to understand it. Right. And everybody kind of expected to understand it. Right. And sometimes we can get too intimidated by the book of Romans, by Very whatever difficult point. parts of Ephesians, first and second Peter have some really crazy things. But I always want to just remind myself and, and people that we're teaching 
the first century Christians heard this. They didn't even read it and thought they could understand it. Yeah, that's a great point. I used 14 commentaries in this series, not because I needed all of them, because when I do a series, I like to learn too, whether it ever makes it into the lesson or not. And you can easily get the impression that, wow, this is very detailed. It's very uh, theological. But your point is so well made. I mean, like what I just said, you could listen to the book of Romans. You could read the book of Romans and come away with that general storyline and be elated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people in the first century did. Paul apparently thought that they would. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Paul obviously very smart, very well educated, uh, very theologically astute, but also very pastoral. And the book of Romans is a very pastoral book. Right. And I, I, what I think is helpful is what you've just given us. That is, if, if I'm reading the book of Romans, help me with a framework of what's going on, what, what I should expect. And what I noticed, that probably the best thing I've ever done for the book of Romans and several other books in the New Testament was last year, maybe 18 months ago, Crossway came out with these books that are called The Letters of Paul. And what they are is all the 13 letters that he wrote Mm -hmm. without chapters or verses just arranged on a page like a normal letter. letter. And so with a small group of guys that I was meeting with, what we did was we took a letter a week and tried to read through each letter in one sitting as many times as we could in that week. So for Mm -hmm. Romans, for example, it's going to take you like 30 or 40 minutes to read Romans straight through. Mm -hmm. Whereas something like... Philippians will take you 10 minutes. Right. And so you can read Philippians every day. Right. But but our goal was to get through Romans maybe twice or three times in one sitting in one week. Or 1 Corinthians was a tough one because it's really long. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed was in the book of Romans, if you read it start to finish, if you don't get kind of, if you don't, if your mind doesn't get bogged down in the chapters and verses in the kind of, the, the famous verses kind of sneak up on you. So Romans 3.23, for example, a lot of people know that verse, mm-hmm. or six twenty three, or whatever. Right. A lot of people know those verses, and so when you get into chapter six, that's what you're immediately thinking about is Romans six twenty three. You right. know that verse. Right. When you don't have any chapters or verses, you don't know what's coming. You're right. just following the argument for the sake of following the argument, and new things pop out at you. The mm-hmm. flow of the letter pops out at you. The sections that you probably didn't pay much attention to before pop out at you. And I'll give you one of the things to kick off the discussion of, of the way the letter flows is there's what's called an inclusio in Romans. Mm-hmm. And an inclusio is basically like a set of parentheses. You see it all over the Bible. It's a very Jewish and a very Greek right. way of doing things. It's really helpful in an oral culture right? where you're getting signals of how to group things in your mind. And right. so an inclusio means... That somewhere towards the beginning and somewhere towards the end, there is a phrase that is exactly the same. Right. It's same words, sounds the same. And you can pick it up when you're reading, but it's, it's easy to pick it up when you're listening to mm-hmm. things. And you'll see these little refrains all over the New Testament. Right. Probably the most famous one is probably in Mark. In Mark, the verb schizo is only used twice in the whole book. It's used in chapter 1 when the sky splits open uh-huh. and God speaks to Jesus at his baptism. It's used at the very end when Jesus dies and the temple is torn schizo into yeah. and, and God's presence you know, right. comes out from the temple across the world. That's a, that's a literary device called an inclusio. Well, Romans has an inclusio mm-hmm. in chapter one, and at the end of the at the end of the book, in chapter sixteen, Paul says that his personal mission, the reason that he's preaching, is so that he can bring about the obedience of faith for all the nations. Right, and that's a great reminder when you're starting out the book of Romans is that Paul thought that his mission wasn't just to preach. Although he he clearly says that his mission is to preach. It wasn't Uh just to be an apostle or a disciple. His goal was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst all the nations. That's what Paul was really trying to do. Right. And if you know that, then you start to read Romans a little bit differently. You ask the question, how is this book showing me what it looks like to be obedient because of the faith I have in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's in the intro. And then he starts out into probably one of the more controversial parts of the New Testament, Romans mm-hmm. chapter 1, 
What is he doing there? Yeah, Romans. I'd like to teach Romans chapter one through three as a as a unit, but he is basically talking about our current condition. It's almost like if you made a movie, mm-hmm. you don't start in the movie with. Chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, no. You start with, we are all under a death sentence. There is a problem here. And that is Mm -hmm. true. It's a true statement. But he begins by emphasizing our current situation. He talks about our disobedience and how, as a result, chapter 1, you know, three times he says, and so God gave them over to a futile mind. God gave them over to unspeakable things and their lusts, etc. And that word, God gave them over, is it's not only a legal word, but it's used in extra-biblical Greek as a term. Uh, he remanded them into the custody of the sheriff. Mm-hmm. He turned them over for the consequences of, of what has happened. So I like to teach one through three as a trial. And Paul is saying, now, stop and think about this. You know, you know more about God than you think you do, even if you've never heard of him, and yet Mm -hmm. you haven't done it. Uh, Some of you will say, yes, but I'm a good moral person. And he said, really? You don't even live up to your own morality. I'll Mm -hmm. judge you by your own morality and you'll fall short, let alone God's. And then third movement, he says, oh, and you Jews, you're religious people. You do know about God. Oh, really? Well, then let's see how well you do at doing what you profess to do. And he comes to the end and he says, no, as a matter of fact, I rest my case that everyone has sinned. We Mm -hmm. all have this terminal disease. So I see that first movement and it is controversial and it's going to be controversial when you tell people you have a problem. You are in rebellion against Mm -hmm. God. Yeah. I think one of the startling things about Romans 1 is that the consequence is wrath. Yes. Uh, you know, one of the most famous verses in Romans, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But it's almost like one of those signs, you know, on like the, the Darwin Awards Twitter, Twitter <laughs> yeah. feed, they'll put those signs up there next to like electrical plants. Yes. Where they say like, this won't only kill you, it will hurt the whole time. Yes. You know, and I, they I say love that. that sign. So, but that's kind of what the first part of Romans is, is look, right. this isn't some just count the cost and live your life now and have a great time. And when you die, you die. You know, the wages of sin is death. Romans 1 especially is trying to show, no, you don't just die. It hurts the whole time. Like This is not going to go well. Right. The, The wrath of God is not just poured out in some, you know, distant eschatological future. The wrath of God is poured out against sin right now for those who are in disobedience to God. And, you know, that's interesting. So let me get your take on this because I want to be careful here that people don't hear this. There are times when you hear preachers who will say, well, that tsunami over there was the wrath of God being unleashed on a bunch of godless people over there. Mm-hmm. Or AIDS is God's wrath being unleashed on homosexual people. The, what Romans talks about is God's wrath as being a justifiable anger at the injustice and rebellion that we are doing. And I read chapter one when he says, and God gave them over, that God's wrath also has an element of removing his care from us mm-hmm. because we departed from it. Right. Do you see do you see wrath in that light as well that's that's obviously there in chapter yeah. one, I think that the correlation between the wrath of God as pointed events. Yes. So you know, like you said, God is judging a group of people with a natural disaster. That that the correlation between that and gospel preaching has been too common in Agreed. the United States. I, it may exist other places as well, but certainly in the United States, among fundamentalists, um, there there is a strict causality mm-hmm. between the sin, individual sins, corporate sins of America or of certain communities. And the pointed wrath of God uh, in the form of an event of some right. kind. Well, what Romans one Romans one is really answering a different question, but I, I want to get to that. I want to get to that phenomenon when we talk about Romans chapter eight. But in Romans one, the phenomenon that you don't think about, and see, this is where I think it, when you get this it will change the way you feel about American Christianity. Mm -hmm. Because what Romans 1 says is sin leads to its own punishment. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean there's not more coming. 
Like I right. said, we could talk in Romans 8 about that, but that doesn't mean there's not more coming. But sin leads to its own punishment because you're right. God, in response to sin, gives humanity over. And the things that he gives humanity over to are not neutral things. No, absolutely. He gives them over to a debased mind. mind exactly. Like a mind that now, instead of thinking two plus two is four, this mind is twisted. It thinks two plus three is four. Mm-hmm. And it continues to make wrong decisions because it's, it's, it's understanding wrong premises. Yeah. He gives them over to do things that are unnatural. Right. And there's this whole gigantic debate over, well, you know, we see, you know, homosexual acts in nature. There are certain animals that reproduce different ways and, you know, that kind of thing. That it completely misses the misses point. Misses the point entirely. To what he's talking about. What is natural for human beings, even beyond your sexuality, is to be in a right relationship with God. Right. And when you're not in a right relationship with God, you do things that are unnatural. And unnatural could be translated, not, not literally, but unnatural can be translated as things that are harmful, things yes. that are miserable. And then you move out from there and you begin to see that when that vertical relationship is not right, then none of the horizontal relationships are going to work well. And so you get into, beyond sexuality, you get into all the things the New Testament continues to talk about is uh, gossip and greed. And uh, at the end of chapter uh, 1, Paul says they have become insolent, arrogant, gossipers, haters of their parents, you know, mm-hmm. he goes through all of these horizontal disturbances. You're absolutely right. Sin is disruptive now and later. Yeah. And this is where I say this will really change the way you think about Christianity, especially American Christianity, is we tend to think that your relationship with God is something that is kind of on your own terms. If you do something that God doesn't like, it's okay, he'll forgive you. Um, and kind of what happens with God stays with God. Mm-hmm. But what Romans 1 and, and Romans 2 are trying to convince us of is that actually when something is wrong with God, something is wrong everywhere. Everywhere, exactly. And so it doesn't make any sense for us to say, you know, well, if that person wants to make that bad choice, then they'll make that bad choice. Well, if it's a bad choice, that's fine. If it's sin, though, sin, it, the point of Romans 1 and 2 is sin will actually destroy you. Right. There's no sense in the book of Romans, anywhere in the Bible really, but especially in Romans 1 and 2, there's no sense that sin is just an arbitrary set of choices. That you might get ahead in life, you might not. Your relationship with God might be fine, might not. But you can live a relatively great life uh, and just make some bad choices. You know, one of the things I like to teach at that point in Romans is that the Bible talks about sin sometimes as an event. A mm-hmm. transaction. You can think of sin as I did this thing and it was wrong. But Romans really takes that to another level and sees it differently. Sin is a condition. It's like, that's why I like to say we had a terminal disease. We mm-hmm. didn't just make a bad decision and, and all of a sudden I broke my arm, so I guess I'll put a splint on it and it'll heal. Yeah. No. We have a terminal disease. So sin is a transaction, but often in the New Testament, we need to understand it as sin is a condition. Yeah, sin sin is not, a good way to put it would be sin is not a a decision, it's a diagnosis. Yeah. And the diagnosis that he's giving in chapters 1, 2, and the first part of 3 is, look, sin, sin isn't just arbitrary, it isn't just a bad thing, it's the worst thing. Right. And when you see sin that way, you have a renewed compassion and desire to understand what can I possibly do to fix this? Right. How can I possibly get away from this? Not only eternally, but right, right now. How do I get away from this right now? If you read Romans <laughs> 1 through 3 and you, you really allow yourself to go with what Paul's saying, mm-hmm. I don't think you can get around the feeling, even as a Christian, the feeling of, oh my goodness, how do I make this right? Yes. That's where that's what you should be feeling by the time you get to Romans that, 3. It, and you don't have to be a scholar to feel that. No. And here's the interesting turn. Get us, maybe get us back and move us along. But you've got a, a nice little bookend on this section. So in chapter 1, it starts with, 
the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And then in chapter 3, at the end of this discussion about sin, you have, but now a righteousness is being revealed Mm -hmm. by God. And so you, you get the problem and you say, you are probably by now asking yourself, oh no, what can I do? And he says, but now a righteousness is being revealed mm-hmm. and moves on from there into the solution. Yeah. So if we take chapter four, which is about Abraham, mm-hmm. and five, six, and seven up until chapter eight, which I think eight is probably, and, and we can talk about this in a minute, but eight is probably the climax of the first part of the argument. Right. I, I tend to see nine through 11 as an integral piece of the argument uh-huh. and a continuation of the argument. But in some sense, a slight aside, and, and we can talk about why Almost people an excursus. think that, yeah. that that's not popular in scholarship today to say that. But chapter eight does appear to be the first peak of the mm-hmm. argument. So if you have the condition and the diagnosis in one through three, and then four through seven is really what is it going to take to be free from this? Right. And the question you're wondering when you enter chapter four is, what could po- what could it possibly be? Because yeah. he's ruled out everything. He's right. ruled out works. He's ruled out being nice to people. He's ruled out, in some ways, just trying to live a good lifestyle from now on. He's right. ruled out everything. Keeping yes. the law is out. What could possibly be the thing? And then he introduces faith. Right. And there's there's a big discussion over whether it's our faith, whether it's the faith of Jesus, whether it's Jesus acting on yeah. our behalf, I think it's probably a lot of those things all combined with mm-hmm. each other. But what you see in chapter four is that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right. There's an exchange, there's an economy in heaven and in Christ that is different than the economy on the earth. Yes. So, and you know that because it grates against what you think about sin when you first read it. Uh-huh. So, one sin equals death? Yes. That doesn't make sense in a human economy. Like, those right. two things are not equal to each other. Uh-huh. One little sin. The proportionality seems off. Death. The proportionality is so off. But what you find out is in God's economy, the proportions are off both directions. Uh-huh. You mean. Abraham believed before God even did anything that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And all of a sudden, it was credited to him as righteousness. One belief equals righteousness. Uh-huh. It's, the, it's, it's just completely different than right. the way that we see in exchange between two human beings. Right. One sin leads to death. One belief, faith in what God has promised, leads to righteousness. Yeah, I like, uh, and particularly in that little section, you see the love of God doesn't come into this book until chapter 5, but then it comes in powerfully. You know, you have that passage in 526, which emphasizes what you're saying is at just the right time, while we were powerless. Now, that's not something we like to hear, but it's, it's what you just said. Christ died for the ungodly. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, God showed his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels, Christ died for us. You see a solution come out of the blue as it were, because the answer is there is nothing you can do. Mm -hmm. It is a terminal diagnosis, but look what God has done. Yes. And on our behalf, Christ paid the penalty, was the faithful son of Israel, Mm -hmm. was obedient to his father, and we somehow are united with Christ. Yes. And that, that unification comes through believing the promises of God, Mm -hmm. putting our trust, putting our faith in Christ. And I really view chapters five through seven as kind of a uh, a series of questions where Paul says, "I know you're having a hard time believing that this is actually true, right?" And I'm going to field some questions here. That's exactly uh, right. about how this actually works in the nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. And so you see, like in chapter six, where the chapter begins and says, "So okay, and let me get you. Let me get what you're saying straight here." Mm-hmm. We, because of what we've done, deserve the wrath of God. In fact, we've incurred the wrath of God in some ways. And there's more to come. And none of us are exempt from it. Christ came, died on our behalf, did everything that we should have done. And now what we need to do is believe God's promises. And our sins will be forgiven. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, we're just grappling with this new exchange rate of of heaven. If that's the case, then doesn't it mean we can just sin all we want? And 
uh, God will just give us more grace? Is that how this works? Because that that that's a yeah. logical question to ask if you get right. what he said in one through five. So then what does he do? Yeah. Well, you've now hit my favorite chapter. I don't think this is your favorite chapter. I, I want you to disclose that at the end of this. Chapter eight is beautiful. That's my that's what I think is going to be your favorite chapter. But six is my favorite for this reason. It's as you read it, it it was the aha moment for me. It's like, yes, that question needed to be asked. Is this cheap grace? Is it easy grace? Is it do what you want? Well, that goes against the grain. I'm like, well, surely not. And he mm-hmm. says, absolutely. I mean, in the Greek is emphatic, you know, meganoito. Absolutely not. May it never be. I mean, it's an, it's an emphatic, like, no way. And then he does one of these Pauline things. In the Greek, it's sort of like, do you not know, which is, I'll translate that liberally, you idiots, mm-hmm. you know? But what he's saying is, oh, no, no. If you think that, you have completely missed the point, but not for the reason you think. Mm-hmm. He doesn't go in and say, no, no, no. I, I, I mean, you do still have to behave. That's not what he says. Mm-hmm. He says, no. Let me explain this. When you are baptized with Christ, you die. The only way to cure you is that the old man has to die. Mm-hmm. And you are raised to walk in newness of life, and now you will never die. He says, and so you put off that life. And there are all kinds of metaphors. I have my favorite for describing this, but essentially what he's answering that is that, oh, no, no. Let me tell you what has actually happens mm-hmm. when you come into that relationship with Christ. You are... The theological term, I guess, would be regenerated. Right. You are made new. And that's where I like to say Jesus didn't come to make better people. He came to make brand new people. Is that how you read that chapter? Yeah. The, the thing that's so interesting about his his logic there is, like you pointed out, he doesn't say, no, 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 no. You can't keep sinning. you got to be good now. Right. That's, that's, that's just, not what he says. That's just not what he says. And... It, it, he says something even more powerful than it, that. It requires a version of grace that's different than what we understand. Your whole system has to be thrown out. That's basically what he's saying in right. all those chapters of Romans is you got to understand how God does things, right. not how human beings do things. And in chapter 6, the answer, like you pointed out, to should we go ahead and sin is no, because that's not you anymore. Right. And this is one of the things I think when you read through Romans kind of with fresh eyes, you discover that a lot of times we miss in our faith. We typically think, if you trust in Christ, you will never die. One of the reasons we think that is because the Bible says it. You know, it says, "He who trusts in me will never will die. never die," uh-huh. and, and that is true. And I think that means eternally you will never die. And there's a really good quote that I've seen float around, and I don't want to be super nitpicky here, but this this is really important in the Book of Romans. The quote says, um, "Born once, die twice. Born twice." die once. Now that's clever. Yeah, it is really clever. clever. Very clever. Born once physically, you will die twice. You'll die physically and you will die spiritually in eternity. But if you're born again, second time, Uh you will die physically, but you'll never die in eternity. That's true. Uh But one of the things that Paul is trying to convince us of is there's actually another death that takes place. Right. And I've written a a, a post on this. I might link to in in the podcast. The Christian faith in the book of Romans comes down to the order and importance of all the deaths. Right. Kind of a morbid topic. But you have the most important death, Christ's death, on our behalf. That's the most important death. Mm-hmm. Most people think that the second most important death is your physical death. Because that's the gateway to e- the eternity. With God. Right. There's actually another death, though, that comes up in Romans chapter 6. And that is... You died with Christ. Yes. Our old person is dead with Christ on the cross, crucified. Now we've been raised to walk with him, still living, still in this body, still on the earth, not in a resurrection body, but we are living with him. So obviously the most famous way he says this is in Galatians, Galatians Mm 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's not anymore I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body. Now, I live by faith in the Son of God. The death that we die with Christ while we're alive is the second most important death that we'll ever die. And as a matter of fact, this is a sideline, but a great place to explain this. The Gnostic heresy uh, that you'll see throughout the Bible were people who were basically denying that. They Mm -hmm. said, you can do whatever you want because this body is bad. Once you die, 
and you're with Christ. Now you get the good body, and you're going to live forever with him. Mm -hmm. They denied what you're basically saying is, no, the new birth starts now. Mm -hmm. And that that is one way of thinking about why those Gnostics, Paul was so harsh to say, well, you are subverting the good news. Yeah. Yeah. What I love in in, in the, the feature point of this is in Romans 6.11, where he says, So then, reckon yourselves yes. as dead exactly. to sin and alive to Christ. That's the mindset change that guarantees you can live the way he says in right. Romans 6. And I like that word picture in Greek. The word is logizeste, mm-hmm. which is... The word for reckon, it's an accounting term. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what column should you put yourself in? Right. <laughs> exactly. And he, and he basically says, account yourself, reckon yourself um, as a dead person. Mm-hmm. You, you, you should be able to point to your, your spiritual obituary. Right. So that you can be alive with Christ. Because the only people exactly. who are alive with Christ are those who have died with Christ. Right. So he moves into chapter 7, and we may have to do a separate thing on this altogether. We probably will because the controversies are huge. But in the... In would the, it be safe to say... Well, I don't know. Would it be safe to say that 7 is the most controversial chapter? Maybe not. Yes. I, I think it... Well, nine through well, you've got two big controversies here, and they're kind of related. But you've got the whole sovereignty controversy mm-hmm. in nine through eleven. But in seven, you have the big controversy: is Paul talking about the Christian life or the pre-Christian life? Mm-hmm. And you're right; we should probably talk about those as separate. Yeah, but, because the the thread that runs through nine through eleven as well is the role of Israel under yes. the law and now under Christ. Are they separate from Christians? Are they the same as Christians? Obviously, he's treating them, you know, with their own section at that point. And then some people even argue whether or not he's even talking to Jews or Gentiles in that part. So right. maybe we could table that. But but I do want to say this, and just you can just write us a, a angry email if you disagree with this. But I'm going to take the stance that chapter seven cannot be talking about the life of a believer. Right. So it can be talking about life before you met Christ. I typically think it's talking about someone who's encountered the law and is trying to keep the law outside Mm -hmm. of Christ. In that sense, I think it might be autobiographical for Paul, Mm -hmm. but not as a Christian. Um, But I don't see any way that the second half of chapter seven, I do the things I don't want to do, you know, the law at work in me. I don't see any way that that can be a Christian. Well, I'll tell you one of the things that is supportive of that idea, and I understand there are different points of view on this, but one of the things that is supportive is as chapter eight opens, uh, which actually, in my view, is how chapter seven ends, you Mm -hmm. know, chapter divisions are arbitrary, but therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. And that therefore there is now no condemnation it seems to support the approach that you are taking. Now, I'll, I'll admit, Shriner's new commentary, he changed his mind on this. Really? In the in the second edition that came out in October, uh, he's gone back to thinking that that could be a believer. A believer. That could be uh-huh. Paul yeah. as a believer, just mm-hmm. currently as it stands. Like I said, we could probably do a whole episode on this, but I don't, I don't think that that can be a believer. Now, most people point to that passage to say, see, look, believers struggled, even Paul. Did things that he didn't want to do. He, you know, he struggled with sin. Just because that verse doesn't say that doesn't mean that that's not a good point. Right? Christians do struggle. Of course, right. we all struggle with sin. I would like to point out that Paul, in kind of some crazy ways, doesn't seem to struggle like we do. Right. Paul says it wasn't hard for him to keep the law, which is very different than my experience. Of mine too. Um, but, but you know, the, for all the worst reasons. downside of that, though, is we need to be really careful reading it that way because we can have a victim mentality, as in we are powerless against sin. That is not a biblical idea. Well, that's the transition into Romans 8. This yes. is where I think it's very hard to read 7 and 8 next to each other describing the same life. In chapter 7, he says, I do the things I don't want to do, and the things I do, I don't do. And in chapter 8, he says, we are more than conquerors in, in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I don't see how those two things meet together right. because the culmination of the entire first seven chapters is Romans 8 where he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, none whatsoever, because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And he condemned sin in the flesh right. in his son, Jesus. Right. And he goes on and he talks about the creation groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. And uh-huh. You know, there's 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 like three or four famous verses in Romans chapter eight. Yeah. Oh, powerful! And at, at the end, 
is just incredibly powerful. The yeah, end and of chapter I, I always say when I when I've taught on this passage before, one of the most amazing things about Romans chapter eight is Romans eight twenty eight, maybe the most famous promise in the Bible. True, God works all things together for good for those who love Him. That's not even in my top three promises in Romans eight. That are your favorite. By the way, you've taught an entire series on Romans eight, if yes. I remember right. Yeah, but if you just read Romans 8, mm-hmm. I would argue, and this is subjective, I'm not saying everybody has to think this, but yeah. as amazing as Romans 8.28 is, yeah. it's not even in the top three greatest promises in Romans chapter 8. Now, my goal, by the way, uh, in our discussion would be our listeners would go, man, i got to go pick up, i got to read Romans again. Now, I don't think there's any way people can't read Romans 8. Like, what are your... You need to tell us. Why don't you email, what are the top promises in Romans 8? Do you agree with Cole that there are promises that are even more powerful than that in Romans 8? But you're right. There's a great claim for Romans 8 being the pinnacle. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I agree with that. I believe it is the high point of the book to this right point. Piper says that it is the Everest of the Bible. Yeah. It is the highest point of the Bible. Not to say that it's more important than the rest of the Bible, but as far as... If you could read one chapter, Romans 8 would be a great place to be. You know, in I know you know as well as I do that uh, discourse analysis has been a big deal in Greek study in the New Testament lately. And uh, part of discourse analysis are leading up to peaks in the argument. This would be the peak of peaks mm-hmm. in this book. Yes. So I think it's pretty safe to say Romans 8 is kind of a capstone. And what he's going to do from Romans 8 is he's going to... Enter into another discussion in Romans 9 through 11. What's happening in Romans 9 through 11? Well, he, it, I'm going to give you my view of 9 through 11. I understand that I do believe it's integral to the book. There are some commentators that would say it was even taken as a standalone and stuck in the book. I mm-hmm. certainly don't agree with that. But I do think it's a little bit of uh, an aside. He says, by the way, at this point, a few of you are probably wondering, well, hey, what about the Jews? Mm-hmm. What about the promises to the Jews? I mean, did God just toss them out? Are they done? And 9 through 11 explains how, in my view, how the Jews fit into this. Mm-hmm. That's its purpose. I think it's one of the more controversial things, though, simply for some of the things that are said in there. Mm-hmm. It's controversial for God saying, I will have mercy upon who I'll have mercy and not upon who I will not. Uh, and if I choose to harden Pharaoh's heart, so be it. And Esau I loved, and or Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated, pardon me. Uh, you know, those are probably what make it really the most controversial. Yeah, I mean, Romans 9 is obviously a big... A big uh, quoted section and and uh you know it's it's a go-to for calvinists Mm -hmm. calvinists love romans chapter (laughs) nine um which there's some reason for it i guess i mean it is a strong kind of pseudo calvinistic passage as much as i hate to use that language because i think calvinists and arminians for the most part the good-natured ones of them are really trying to figure out what the bible says oh absolutely and but that's a big go-to passage um, that would be like the cage stage Calvinist go-to passages. When you want to start a fight, um, you you just quote Romans chapter nine. You pluck it right out of context, and you throw down, you know, at your yeah, Bible study. Exactly. But to me, the the more the more controversial thing that's said in Romans nine through eleven is, and in the end, all Israel will be saved. Yes, that is controversial. I'm going to read that for various reasons that we don't have time to get into here. Is that he is redefining what Israel is. Not mm-hmm. all Israel is Israel, right? He says. In other words, and then the whole grafting in, which is in another book. Yeah. But basically, Paul saying God has redefined what Israel is. You thought it was ethnic; it was never ethnic. It was always by faith, right? So you would say, if we could summarize nine through eleven, we could we could pretty much say all of chosen Israel will be saved. Oh. <laughs> nice move there. <laughs> But yes, I, and I understand people see that a little differently, and it and it is a little controversial. But it does seem to me that that's um, that's certainly a reasonable way. Now, and back to your point, I know you were tongue in cheek, but election, it doesn't make any difference what view you have. You have to acknowledge election. You have to acknowledge sovereignty. Right. I think most of the disagreements are over in what proportions and in what way, uh, not the fact. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're Armenian, you're Calvinist, you believe chapter nine is true. 
Right. And so well, and there is Romans a, a basis 8, for discussion. Has, has led you into that discussion to begin right. with. But, so you get done with, with Romans chapter 11, and you get one of the greatest doxologies oh, in the Bible. Amazing. Paul just is overwhelmed at that point with the wisdom of God, unsearchable, and who can even fathom what God has done in Jesus Christ. You, you know, he probably dictates these. This is the way it was done. And I see little bow-legged Paul, you know, yeah. hook-nosed, bald-headed Paul, pacing back and forth, you know, the person trying to write down what he's saying. Yeah. He's dictating this. And he got himself so revved up and so into it that he just bursts into this yeah. song of praise about God. Yeah. Oh, the unsearchable riches. Yeah. I you can just see Paul just working himself up into Oh, yeah. A, yeah, I love that section. And... and you know, as as controversial as nine through eleven is, it's not read enough, even just for the sake of that doxology right. that's at the end. And so he turns the corner, like he does in a lot of his letters, and he says, "Therefore," mm-hmm. which he said that several times in Romans. You get a big therefore in chapter five, but at this point, it's a real turning point in the book. The argument, for the most part, is over. Now you get the implications. Right. So you get the very famous 12, 1 and 2, talking about, now what is our response yes. to the gospel? If all this is true, then we can't be conformed to the world. we got to be transformed by the right. renewing of our minds. We have got to offer ourselves to God. As living sacrifices. As living sacrifices. Right. And the rest of 12, 13, and 14 is really the implications of mm-hmm. the gospel. You get things like, what should we think about government? How should we grow in our faith? Uh, get a section on spiritual gifts. Right. Um, How do we treat others whose uh, faith is not as mature as ours? Exactly. You get all of these. In other words, sin, we, you started with this great point you made in chapter one. Sin breaks our horizontal relationships, breaks everything in our life. You get to 12, 13, 14, and he begins to talk about how grace restores a new kind and healthy relationship in all of our horizontal relationships. Yeah, that's a great way to encapsulate 12 through 14. In chapter 15, Paul begins to give a little bit of a biographical sketch Mm -hmm. of what he's been doing, why he's writing the book. I've really always loved the part in 15, I think starting in either 19 or 20, where he says the purpose of doing what he's doing is because he he refuses to build on somebody else's foundation. Mm -hmm. He says, I won't name... Christ where he's already been named. My desire is to preach Christ where he hasn't been named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation. And so he introduces that he wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel, and he wants to go to Spain, to the ends of the earth, to preach the gospel there. And in 16, he greets, I can't remember how many, but he oh, greets like 50 people in, yeah. in 16. Even though he's is, never been to Rome. Which is great for a city you've never been to. That's right. Um, but anyway, he, he greets them, and then he concludes the letter uh, by telling him that he wants to come to them and that in, in praising God for what he's done. And at the end of the letter of Romans, you get, first of all, you get fundraising, which is always kind of interesting mm-hmm. to think about, that Paul really did want something from the Romans, and he wanted them to become partners with him in the gospel so that right. he could continue to advance the mission. And uh, I think the last thing I would say, and, and you can add to this at the end too, the last thing I would say about the book of Romans to keep in mind is, so in Schreiner's new commentary, he asked the question in the introduction, why write the book of Romans? Mm-hmm. Was Did Paul think that he wanted to get his theology down? Did he want to just raise funds to go to Spain? Did he want to just give a preview introduction of right. getting to go to Rome and getting to meet them? All of those things are probably true in some sure. way or another. But Schreiner arrives at, at why he thinks that Paul wrote the book of Romans. He believes that Paul more than anything else, wrote the book of Romans so that he could glorify God in his call. Hmm. That his call was to be the apostle of the Gentiles, to preach the gospel where it hadn't been named before, and that not just doing that to fulfill God's plan for him, but that by doing that, he would bring glory to God, which was his greatest joy. Yeah, that's a powerful point because as you read through, and I'm glad you mentioned that because now I hope everybody listening to this will say, I'm going to pick it up and read the book of Romans in one sitting. And if you do that, you're going to realize this book is really all about God and glorifies God in what he has done and how we can then now glorify God in how we live out our new lives, the new creatures that we are. It's it's very different than a lot of ways we preach today. 
and I'm not criticizing preaching today specifically, I'm simply saying if you read Romans, you would have to say it's not primarily theological. It really is to, to, to say, is God not incredible? Is he not awesome? Is he not worthy of praise? And look at what God has done. I, I think that's really an astute observation. Well, one last thing before we wrap up this episode. This week is the first Sunday of Advent. So actually, by the time they're listening to this episode, we're three days into Advent. Right. So catch up on the Advent calendars. Uh, If you've got an Advent Devo book, hopefully you're three for three at this point. (laughs) Um, First Sunday of Advent and entering the Advent season, I just wanted to ask you, uh, what are your tips? What are your best practices for Advent? So you know, we, there's a lot of talk about keeping Christ in Christmas right. and the, the reason for the season. I mean, whatever you want to say, fighting the Starbucks red cups, whatever, whatever your <laughs> particular cause is for Christmas. Uh, as Christians, we really do want to remember that this is more than anything, a religious holiday for us. This is a celebration. This is a Christian feast, if you will. Yes. How do you keep Christmas meaningful spiritually? That's a great question, whether you, you, for yourself, and then also those that are parents, you'll have this question about your kids as well. I have this, uh, I did not grow up in church. And then when I did become a Christian, I became a Christian in a denomination, a church that did not observe Advent. Mm-hmm. And so it's obviously not in the Bible. It's a, something that the early church did. I'm a big fan of Advent. And that is those four Sundays before Christmas, a looking forward to a time of preparation. I'm a big fan of that idea because it's a way to put a fence around some of the secular practices. I think it's easy to identify with the secular world because it's, uh, you may not agree with this, but I think it's when the secular world gets kind of close to Christianity. People that are not nice the rest Mm -hmm. of the year decide, oh, we're supposed to be nice. Mm -hmm. We give gifts. We get gifts. That's not Christian per se, but they start to get close to being Christian. So it's easy to jump over and go, oh, aren't we just all great little children of God, world peace, mom's apple pie, and everybody be nice to each other, and pay for the person behind you in Starbucks in December. So I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm just saying that's not what this season is about at all. And that's why I like Advent, is we see Advent not as a gift we're giving, it's a gift we've received. Mm -hmm. And we see Advent as the incarnation of God. When God actually entered the world, and we remember what has been done for us, and you know, that is so far away from niceness that it, it, we really need to keep that separate. So mm-hmm. I see Advent as a way to do it. We wrote a couple of small Advent booklets that you know won't make any money on it. They're, I think our church sells them for $2 a piece, whatever it costs us to print these little things. And they're just little guides to how you might go through a, an Advent each Sunday with your children. Or there's another one that's kind of like a small group, more for adults, uh, what you might discuss To me, Advent helps me keep my mind oriented toward what is this really about? Mm -hmm. You've been through some Advent uh, celebrations, and we've done it in our family. What's your experience of it? Well, we were the guinea pigs for that. (laughs) You were the guinea pigs. You still see a really good uh, picture circa 2006 or whatever, (laughs) whenever it was of our family on the back of those books. But, you know, I think that the point of Advent is to celebrate the deeper joys, the deeper meanings of the season. There's more to Christmas than Coca-Cola polar bears. I mean, right. and going to the mall and all of that. And and it doesn't have to be overtly Christian in the sense of a lot of families think that, that celebrating Advent means sitting around and reading the Christmas story or something like right. that from the Bible. But one of the things about Christmas that's so powerful for us is that Christ came because God was coming back for his people. Yes. He had been promising for thousands of years that he was going to return and dwell with his people. And now finally he's doing it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's always meant the most to me about Advent is we're so intentional about just getting everyone together, whether it's multiple families, our family, 
getting everybody together to celebrate, that togetherness, that sense of family, and whether it's your family or a family that you create for the yeah, Advent our, season. Ours is typically other people joining. Yeah, yes. that is that is part of the sense of what Christmas actually means, is God gathering together his people, coming back for them, rescuing them. That's a sense of what it means to celebrate Advent. Of course, we have great food. We have to get desserts. We do read Bible stories. We do activities. Discussion. But setting mm-hmm. aside a Sabbath time, a rest time, a celebration mm-hmm. time is part of the joy of Advent. And I would say that the food is actually more important than you think. What you have is not particularly important, but that idea of, quote, breaking bread together, coming together around the table. I mean, for us, it was sprawled all through the living room with 20 mm-hmm. people in our house. But that idea is very powerful because that is a family, kind of a family behavior. So I think the food's important, the gathering together with a common purpose. You can gather for Advent with people that you would never do anything particularly socially with, and yet you have that same hope. Yeah. You know, one thing about the uh, Coca-Cola polar bears, I I really, really like that commercial Mm -hmm. for this reason. It's brilliant, by the way. I mean, they've kind of reinvented the modern notion of Christmas. They have. That's exactly right. I admire that the skill of it, but I also want to point this out. I don't know if you've thought of it this way. Why does everyone like the polar bear, you know, giving the penguin a Coke and, uh, you know, and all these kind of nice things because it's what we deeply aspire to. Mm -hmm. We all deeply long for a sense of belonging and a sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. And that is exactly what Christmas is, Mm -hmm. is the true belonging and sense of brotherhood and sisterhood. In other words, what the world is longing for in a bottle of Coke Mm -hmm. is happening in Jesus Christ. And I think that that is an opportunity to realize, you know what? Our secular world desperately wants what Jesus has done. And it always encourages me to spend the rest of the year preaching the gospel. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.